Father, this morning as we come to your word, we, we ask that you would show us wonderful things. Father, show us life-changing truths from your word this morning. Father, we ask that the seed of your word would be planted in good soil in these distracted hearts of ours, and Father, that it would spring to life and bear much fruit in our lives, in our marriages, in our families, in our neighborhoods. Father, do that work in our hearts. Father, we want to know your will, and we want to live in a manner that's worthy of your son, Jesus. So, Father, we recognize that we are fully dependent upon you to act that miracle. And Father, we lift up our missionaries, Mark and Patty, Father, as they are trying to rebuild their ministry and their outreaches in the Philippines, we ask that you would grant them much grace, Father, give them wisdom and how best to minister. And Father, we ask, especially for Patty, that you would give her many opportunities to proclaim the love of Christ in the gospel to the women that she meets in her work at the mobile clinic. And Father, this morning I, I ask that you would give me clarity. Father, this subject of reconciliation is such a delight. Father, I want to be able to express it clearly. Father, I want to be able to express it with boldness. But Father, I ask that you would, that you would grant me that. Father, keep me from error. Father, I ask that my words would just be helpful and that I would say nothing amiss this morning. Father, I pray that as we worship you in learning from your word this morning, that you would be glorified. Father, we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. One of my heroes of the faith is the 18th century theologian Jonathan Edwards. If you know nothing else about Edwards, you probably know that he preached what is likely the most famous sermon in American history, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Let me give you a taste of that sermon. The God that holds you over the pit of hell... Much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you, and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else to be, but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet tis nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. Well, that's the kind of sermon that most people imagine when they think of Jonathan Edwards. What might surprise them is that he actually preached and wrote volumes 
not only on the wrath of God, but on the glories of heaven and on being in God's presence and in beholding him face to face. Here's a clip from a sermon that Edwards Edwards preached 11 years before Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He was 27 years old, and his text was Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pleasure of seeing God is so great and strong that it takes the full possession of the heart. It fills it brimful so that there shall be no room for any sorrow, no room in any corner for anything of an adverse nature to joy. No darkness can bear such powerful light. It is impossible that they that see God face to face and behold his glory and love so immediately as they do in heaven should have any such thing as grief or pain in their hearts. When once the saints are thus come into God's presence, tears shall be wiped from their eyes, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The pleasure will be so great as fully and perfectly to employ every faculty. What Edwards means there is that at the sight of God, every ounce of your being will be filled with pleasure. The sight of God's glory and love will be so wonderful, so engaging to the mind, and shall keep all the powers of it in such strong attention that the soul will be wholly possessed and taken up. What Edwards was describing there is what theologians call the beatific vision. The experience of beholding the glory and the perfections of God that those who are reconciled by the blood of Christ will bask in forever. Keep that description of the beatific vision in mind as we explore this morning's text. We're in chapter 1 of the letter to the church in Colossae. Paul just finished the Christ hymn, which magnified the Son of God as the supreme Lord over both the old creation and the new. He is the Lord of the universe, and he is the Lord of the universal church. In the final verse of the Christ hymn, Paul declared that through the blood of Christ, God would reconcile all things to himself. There will be a cosmic reconciliation. In verse 21, Paul moves now from the reconciliation of the universe to the reconciliation of individuals. And he shifts from a view of the exalted son of God to sinful and estranged sons of men. What Paul is doing here is pointing to the experience of the Colossians as a demonstration that his new creation is in the offing. Here's the point of this morning's passage. If you get nothing else, get this. God reconciles sinners by the blood of Christ to present them to himself in holiness. God reconciles sinners by the blood of Christ to present them to himself in holiness. Here's another way of putting that. 
To be presented holy before a holy God requires Christ's blood-bought reconciliation. Now, we don't use that word reconciliation very often. And in our circles, you typically hear us speaking of justification and using theological terms like that. But reconciliation is what this morning's passage is about. Reconciliation is what Paul believed the Colossians had experienced when Epaphras explained the gospel to them and they received it by faith. And the way that Paul makes his point about reconciliation is by recounting the past experience and the present experience and what will be the future experience of the Colossians. He reminded them of their unholy past. Then he tells them of the glorious reality of their present standing before a holy God. And then he tells them what they have not yet fully experienced, the future of being presented in holiness before their God. Past, present, and future. Sort of a mini story of the life of the Colossians. And a mini story of those of us who have been reconciled as well. I think that what we love to do when we sit around a community group and we're getting ready to um, meet someone for the first time, what do we ask? So how did you come to know Christ? And those stories typically start with the past. This is the way I used to be. Here's what Christ did for me. And then sometimes we talk about where we hope to be with him in eternity. And of course, then because we're reformed, we say, when did you become reformed? which is sort of a letdown after you've talked about glorious things like salvation. Paul reminds the Colossians of three things about their previously pagan condition. You see, this was a new church and probably full of new converts. And so that first experience they had of Christ was probably fresh in their minds. Verse 21, the Colossians were once alienated, You see, some things, some offense estranged them from God. This idea of alienation always carries with it the idea of separation. But this estrangement was not merely a matter of distance, like a friend that moved to Texas for a new job. No, this this alienation included a disdain or a loathing for the other person. It's moving to Texas to get as far away from you as I can because I can't stand you. I think that's why Jonathan Edwards may have been justified in comparing God's view of the unrepentant sinner with our view of a loathsome insect or a venomous serpent. The word alienation is only used two other times in the New Testament, and both are are by Paul, and they're found in the letter to the Ephesians. In chapter 2, Paul said, remember that you, and he's speaking to the Ephesian believers, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And verse 13 is a perfect summary of this morning's sermon. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near 
by the blood of Christ. That's a snapshot of the past life of the Ephesians, and that's a snapshot of the past life of the Colossians. They were separated, they were alienated, they were strangers, and they were far off from God. And their alienation was fundamentally because of God's holy hatred of their sin. Sin and guilt were the ground of the offense that divided them from God. The other place Paul used that word is in chapter 4 of Ephesians. And he told them to stop behaving like Gentiles because the Gentiles are darkened in their understanding. And then he describes their alienation like this. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. It's Ephesians 4.18. The pre-Christ condition of the Colossians was the same as the Ephesians. They had been alienated from the life of God because of a heart condition. They had hard hearts. That leads us to the second thing we know about the past condition of these believers. Previously, the Colossians were hostile in mind. That is, they were hostile in mind to God. They didn't just think differently. They were antagonistic to God. They were at cross purposes. Their attitudes were diametrically opposed and dead set against God. The word hostile literally means enemy. The King James translates this as you were enemies in your mind. Elsewhere, Paul described the unbeliever as futile in their thinking. Because the unbeliever rejects what God clearly reveals of himself in creation, their minds form vain and worthless conclusions about him. Paul wrote to the Romans, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. That would have been the reasonable thing for creatures to do. Instead, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. But in our text, Paul goes a step further. Not only were the minds or the attitudes of the Colossians futile, they were positively hostile against their God. They had evil minds, and they had evil hearts. And what naturally flows from an evil mind and an evil heart but evil actions? The Colossians... Thirdly, we're we're engaged in evil behavior. You brood of vipers. Jesus said those words to a group of Pharisees who had just accused him of using demonic power to cast out demons. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. That was the story of the Colossians before God reconciled them. They were estranged from him. They were enemies in their attitudes towards him. And their behavior, as it always does, followed the dictates of their evil hearts. That's the story of the Colossians before Christ 
That's the story of every son or daughter of Adam since the fall. We are sinners, all of us. Sinners from birth and sinners by behavior. The confession framed it like this. From this original corruption, that is the fall and the spread of sin to successive human generations, from this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to all evil. That comes directly from Romans 8, 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. From that original corruption and our total inability to do good do proceed all actual transgressions. That's exactly the behavior that Jesus said flowed naturally from our evil hearts. For out of the heart, he said, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. So Jesus just hit every person in this auditorium. If you've never killed someone or slept around, you've certainly had a bad thought. You've took something that didn't belong to you, or you told a little white lie, or you slandered someone on Facebook. We are sinners, all of us, sinners from birth and sinners by our behavior. And our sin and our guilt for our sin is the ground of that alienation from God. That's the past. Now the present. Enter verse 22 and the glorious reversal of this alienation. By one definition, alienation means the restoration of friendly relationships or unity and of peace where before there had been hostility and alienation. The restoration of friendly relationships and peace. The great offense that alienated God from the Colossians was their sin, their hostile thinking and their evil behavior. And the removal of that offense and the making of peace between God and the Colossians is what we call reconciliation. And it's probably helpful here to make a distinction. I don't want to be confusing, but I am referring this morning to objective reconciliation. This is God's view of reconciled sinners. It's not subjective, which is how we feel about God. Subjectively, I might feel as if God is far from me. What I'm referring to here is objective reconciliation. This is what has happened. It's a finished act. It is something that Christ did on the cross for us. This is objective. This is a reality. This is the truth about how God views his own. Three things I want us to see about this reconciliation. First, God is the one doing the reconciling. Not the Colossians. God is the reconciler, not man. Back up a couple of verses to verses 19 and 20, which Josh preached last week. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, that is through Christ, God will reconcile to himself all things. For a clearer example, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. I want you to see this for yourself. God is the reconciler. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciles us to himself. Who's doing the reconciling? God. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Again, who's the subject? Who's doing the action in that sentence? It's God. And who's the object? And who's the receiver of this reconciling, peacemaking action? It is us. Or in the second half of the passage, it is the world. So the first thing we need to know about this reconciliation is that it was an act of God. As the Scottish theologian John Murray put it, reconciliation was a divine performance. God provided it. God did it. The second thing we need to know about reconciliation is that it was fully accomplished by the death of Christ. Verse 22, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. The only way to understand why the bloody execution of the Son of God was required for reconciliation is to understand two things. We need to understand something of the gravity of the offense. And we need to understand something of the holiness of the one offended. The hostility and evil conduct of the Colossians was perpetrated against an infinitely holy and just God who is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. That's from Habakkuk chapter 1. Their offense, the ground of the Colossians' alienation was sin. Sin is rebellion against God. Even those little ones, the little white lie, It is rebellion against God, Leviticus 26. Sin is an abomination to God, Proverbs 15. It is ungodliness, Isaiah 32. It is wickedness, Ezekiel 18. It is lawlessness, 1 John 3. And all sin is primarily perpetrated against an infinitely holy and just God. For there to be reconciliation, the offense of sin must be removed and justice must be satisfied. In a sermon titled, The Justice of God in the Damnation of Sinners, this is why Edwards had the reputation he had, The Justice of God in the Damnation of Sinners, Edwards said, If you should forever be cast off by God, that is, if you were forever to be alienated, for eternity be separated from God, it would be agreeable to your treatment of Jesus Christ. It would have been just with God if he had cast you off forever without ever making you the offer of a savior. 
but God hath not done that. He has provided a savior for sinners and offered him to you, even his own son, Jesus Christ, who is the only savior of men. Sin was a problem, if I can even speak that way, for the God who would reconcile men. If he was to reconcile sinners to himself and remain perfectly just and righteous, the infinite penalty for sin, that is the wrath of the Almighty, must be satisfied in full. And this was the great exchange that happened at the cross. Our sins were punished vicariously through the only one who could bear the wrath of God, God the Son. He suffered on behalf of those that he would save. Not only did he live the perfect life that we were under moral obligation to live as his creatures, but he died the death that we justly deserved because of our hostility to him. He was executed in our place. This rec reconciliation then was a blood-bought reconciliation. Negatively, the cross removed the ground of alienation between God and man. And positively, the cross brought peace between them. Oh, our Lord Jesus rightly deserves his title. He is the Prince of Peace. In Romans chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, Paul wrote, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That verse brings us to our third point. Reconciliation is now. It is a present reality for believers I'm sure you caught this as we were reading the text. You were once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh. We saw the same mind-blowing truth just a second ago in Romans 5. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. If you are in Christ you are presently blessed by God in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and that includes your reconciliation. Oh, that we might live in light of the reality of having been reconciled to the Almighty. Let that truth sink into your soul. If you are in Christ today, you are now reconciled to God. It is a present reality for believers. So, God acted through the bloody execution of his son and reconciled hell-deserving sinners to himself. Now, why did he do that? We've hinted at the answer several times now, but let's make it explicit. Verse 22, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. There's the future. 
God reconciled estranged, hostile evildoers by the death of Christ in order to present them before himself. The presence of God is now in view, and we're right back where we started when I quoted Jonathan Edwards on the beatific vision. The Colossians were going to be presented to God. And as you might imagine, no experience could be more satisfying or more terrifying than that. The difference hinges entirely on whether or not you are reconciled to God. Paul lists three qualities that mark these reconciled ones in the presence of their God. And just an interesting side note on these three words. Paul is using a literary device that is not uh, visible to us in the English. He's using an alliteration. Each of these Greek words starts with alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet. First, they will be holy. They will be holy like God is holy, Leviticus 19. As God is holy or entirely or completely separate from all that is evil or sinful, so we must be if we are to safely enter the presence of the Almighty. Two, they will be blameless. The word reminds us of the Old Testament requirement that sacrifices, whether it be a lamb or a goat or a bull, must be without defect, without spot or blemish. They must be blameless. And number three, they will be above reproach. This is very similar to the word blameless. It means they will be faultless. They will not be open to accusation. They will be free from blame. They are holy, blameless, and above reproach. Those words all overlap in their meaning. And the nuance between them is probably not the main point. What Paul is doing is he is repeating himself three times in order to emphasize the reality that to be in the presence of God requires a superlative holiness. Holy, blameless, and above reproach. So why did God reconcile sinners through the cross? Because the condition of sinners was such that they could never enter the presence of God without holiness, without blamelessness, and without being above reproach. The cross was how God accomplished all of that and reconciled sinners to himself. So let me ask this question. I know that the truths that I've presented this morning are nothing new to 99% of you. Many of you have been Christians for years and you've heard these truths before. There's nothing that I've said that is novel or new. And that's good. But let me ask this question. What are we to do with this? I mean, what does reconciliation mean for us today? You get the point. God reconciles sinners by the blood of Christ to present them to himself in holiness sometime in the future when my good life has been lived and over, right? Well, not to sound disrespectful, but what does reconciliation have to do with us today? Well, let me try to answer that by addressing two groups who are in this room this morning. 
the believer and the unbeliever, those who have been reconciled to God and those who have not. First to the believer. If you are the object of Christ's blood-bought reconciliation, rest in it. Rest in your reconciliation. His reconciling love for you is certain and sure. Let it comfort you when the world around you implodes. You can lose all your money in the stock market tomorrow. The bank can foreclose on your house. They can kill you for the sake of Christ, but they cannot undo the peace that God, through Christ, secured for you at the cross. No one and no thing can ever alienate you again from the love, the reconciling love of God. For I am sure, Paul wrote, that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So rest, brothers and sisters, in your reconciliation. It is certain and it is secure. And when you feel your feet begin to falter, I want you to sing with the Apostle Jude. I want you to cling by faith to the one who is able to keep you from stumbling. And listen to this, listen to this phrase. Cling by faith to the one who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. That's the beatific vision. Those pleasures for you are most certain, not because of your strength or stamina, but because he is able to keep you from stumbling. Praise the Lord. Number two. If you're the object of Christ's blood-bought reconciliation, stop pretending. I understand that for the next women's study, you're going to be going through a little book called The Gospel-Centered Life. Well, here's a preview. You're going to learn two concepts in that book. Stop pretending and stop performing. As we grow in our Christian life, two things are going to happen. Our awareness of the holiness of God will increase, as will our awareness of our own sin. Have you ever felt more sinful today than when you first came to Christ? I do. That's because the Spirit brings conviction through His Word day after day and reveals the ugly depths of sin that still remain in us. And the more aware we are of remaining sin, the more grieved we are by sin. And the more we learn of the holiness of God, the more we see our, unhol our own unholiness, and it grieves us. And if you're not resting securely in the finished reconciling work of Christ and His righteousness, you'll be tempted to either pretend or to perform. We all pretend in different ways. 
Sometimes our pretending takes the form of comparing ourselves with other people. We do that to justify our comparatively small sins. See, I goof off at the job sometimes, but I'm not as bad as Bill. That guy can't even keep a job. Sure, I was a little rude to my wife before I left the house this morning, but I'm not as bad as Bill. His marriage is a dumpster fire. Sure, I overeat a little, but Bill's a smoker. Look what that guy's doing to the temple. I'm just not as bad as those other guys. We love to compare ourselves. Sometimes our pretending takes the form of making excuses. I'm not really that way. I wasn't feeling well. That's why I reacted the way I did. I know that that's God dishonoring trash, but my husband likes the show. And that's the only reason I watch it is just to spend some time with him. I really don't have time to serve on Sunday mornings. I'm busy. And how many times have you heard this one? I just don't feel called to it. I just don't feel, and you can fill in the blank. I just don't feel called to that. Sometimes our pretending takes the form of false righteousness. Look at the good things I do. I'm an elder. I homeschool my kids. I give 11%. I don't smoke, cuss, or chew, or chase after women that do. You see, when we refuse to acknowledge how sinful we really are, we start to spin and bend the truth to appease our conscience and to make ourselves look better than we are. We live a lie. Here's a diagnostic question that you can ask yourself. You can ask yourself privately, and we're going to do this in community groups this week. Here's the diagnostic question. What gives you a feeling of personal credibility? What gives you a sense of validity or acceptance or a good standing? Your answer to that question can help you uncover areas in your life where you're pretending and relying upon your own standard of righteousness instead of resting in the finished work of Christ. Stop. Stop comparing yourselves to others. Stop making excuses for your sin. And stop resting in false righteousness. Instead, run to the cross. That's where your reconciliation was secured. And number three, if you are the object of Christ's blood-bought reconciliation, stop performing. As we become increasingly aware of the holiness of God, it can be a debilitating feeling. Because his perfection is absolute. All of his commands are perfectly righteous, and he hates all sin. And if we're not firmly grounded in the gospel... We will live in constant anxiety that somehow we must do, somehow we must perform to earn God's approval. You see, the better my performance, the more favorable he will be to me. I don't want to disappoint him, so I'm going to work harder. If I could just pedal harder and pedal faster, I can meet his expectations. Of course, it's an absolute impossibility for you to perform up to his infinitely righteous standard. 
That's what Christ did. You don't have to live under that crushing weight. Are you so foolish, Paul said to the Galatians? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And here's a quote from the book I mentioned earlier. Performance-driven Christianity is a minimizing of God's holiness. Thinking we can impress God with our right living only shows that we've reduced his standards far below what they actually are. Rather than being awed by the infinite measure of his holy perfection, we've convinced ourselves that if we just try hard enough, oh, we can merit God's love and approval. That is a denial of the gospel. And here's a diagnostic question for you. This is a hard one. What does God think of you right now? What does he think about you right now? I think in the book they say, what's the look on his face? If you think that he is anything but fully satisfied because of the reconciling work of Christ on the cross, you might be in a performance mindset. The gospel truth is that in Christ, God is deeply satisfied with you. In fact, based on Jesus' work, God has adopted you as his own son or daughter. But when we fail to root our identity in what Jesus has done for us, we slip into performance-driven Christianity. Stop. Stop performing in order to meet God's expectations of you or to improve your standing before him. Your reconciliation, brothers and sisters, is a present reality. And Christ met all the expectations. And your standing before God today is based solely on his righteousness. That is the gospel. Now, that's not to say that good works are optional for the Christian life. But that's a sermon for another day. To the unbeliever. To the unbeliever, I want you to listen again to the words of Jonathan Edwards, not his sinners in the hands of an angry God, but his scripture-saturated description of what it'll be like for the pure in heart, the reconciled, to see God face to face, the beatific vision. The pleasure of seeing God is so great and strong that it takes the full possession of the heart. It fills it brimful so that there shall be no room for any sorrow, no room in any corner for anything of an adverse nature from joy. No darkness can bear such powerful light. It is impossible that they that see God face to face, that behold his glory and love so immediately as they do in heaven, 
should have any such thing as grief or pain in their heart. When once the saints are thus come into God's presence, tears shall be wiped from their eyes, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The pleasure will be so great as fully and perfectly to employ every faculty. The sight of God's glory and love will be so wonderful, so engaging to the mind, and shall so keep all the powers of it in such strong attention that the soul will be wholly possessed and taken up. Unbeliever, you will stand in the presence of God one day. You don't know when that will be. It may be soon. But know this. The endless pleasures described by Jonathan Edwards for the reconciled are for the reconciled. But you are estranged from God. And the offense that stands between him and you is your sin and your guilt. But God acted. And he provided a reconciliation through the blood of the cross in order to present you before him in holiness. You must receive that blood-bought reconciliation by faith. You must embrace Christ by faith. You must trust him, not your own performance and not your false righteousness. By partaking of him, John Calvin wrote, we receive grace. Namely, that being reconciled to God through Christ's blamelessness, we may have in heaven a not a judge, but a gracious father. If you are not at peace with God this morning, if you will face him as a judge and not as a gracious father, then with the Apostle Paul, I implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for, for these verses. Thank you for the marvelous truth of reconciliation. Father, thank you that you acted because we could not. Thank you that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you loved us. And through the blood of your son, you reconciled us. Father, that truth is mind-boggling. Father, forgive us for not resting in that truth. Forgive us for pretending Forgive us for minimizing your holiness, minimizing sin. Forgive us for trying to perform in order to please you, in order to fix our standing before you. Father, we just want to rest in our reconciliation and give you glory for what 
you accomplished through your son on the cross. Father, if there's people here this morning who do not know your reconciling love, Father, I pray that they would be so allured by the thought of spending eternity in your glorious and beautiful and pleasurable presence that today they would embrace you by faith. Embrace the finished work of your son on the cross. Oh, Father, thank you for these truths. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.